morning, you guys. We're in James chapter 4 today, and uh, as you flip there, let's just stand together as we uh, pray over our text today and our time before the word. Lord, before we come to the word of God, we want to come to you, the God of the word, and just bow our hearts before you, humbling ourselves before your mighty hand, Lord, just before your power and your majesty. And Lord, as there are just no doubt people in this room today that were in the same place as the readers of the book of James in the first century church, Lord, just kind of wanting to have one foot in the world and one foot in with the Lord and wanting to be Christians in name only, but not in deed. Lord, we just pray that the Spirit of God would just pour out among us and move among us and, Lord, just pull us up out of the miry pit of just easy believism Christianity that is no Christianity at all at all Lord you you call us to live for you and Lord we're so thankful for the grace of God even as James will just expound the grace of God today we're so thankful for your favor that's been given to us through Christ Jesus we receive that afresh today and since we've been given such amazing grace lord we just pray that you would propel us to many wonderful things that will reflect your glory in prineville and in this region and in this world we pray this in the awesome name of jesus amen amen you can be seated while we're in James chapter 4, we're going to just hop back a few verses to James chapter 3, verse 13. And uh, the title of today's message is, Pride Promotes Strife, But Faith Produces Humility. The context of James chapter 4 flows from James chapter 3, verse 13. So let's just read it together. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy or literally bitter bitterness and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so this was two weeks ago that we found ourselves in this text before Easter Sunday. We were in James chapter 3, and you can always get online and listen to the messages. Jeremy's had them uploaded by Sunday evening, which is uh, world records there that we're setting. But chapter 3 speaks so boldly and in our face that there is a wisdom that is not from the Lord. It is an earthly, carnal fleshly wisdom that appeals to our flesh it appeals to our senses it appeals to what we think is good and what we think is right and if we are in a place of isolating ourselves from the word of God and from fellowship and community and wise counsel in the presence of the Lord we so quickly can be in a place where we're receiving into ourselves this earthly worldly wisdom that has its roots in bitterness bitter envy 
That word envy in the Greek can be translated bitterness. And so, just interesting, bitter bitterness. You know, it's like a little kid trying to insult somebody. You know, you bitter Bob, bitter bitterness, you know. And that's at the heart of this earthly wisdom. We see that it's self-seeking in essence. This is satanic, we see in the text. Chapter 3 speaks much of demonic things, things that flow out from our heart, that our tongue can speak, that can just have its root in demonism and devilish things. This wisdom is sensual and sexual, is, is what it's speaking of there in verse 15. It's demonic. It is demonic. We looked at how just the conflicts in this world that we have seen, even in the worst wars and the worst genocides, just flow from this envying, bitterness, self Seeking, and verse 16 says, every evil thing is found there. Every evil thing. Good exercise to just start writing down a bunch of evil things on a piece of paper and then just ponder back to how they have their root there in this selfishness, right? Envying and bitterness. It's responsible for this uh, this earthly, envious, self-seeking logic is responsible for all of the problems around us. Isn't that interesting? You can just kind of narrow everything down to this type of logic and this type of reasoning. So that, that was our text two weeks ago. Ponder that, right? Now, it's interesting how the very last verse of the chapter has kind of this, almost like this up spot, you know? The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we have this peace. And, and those who follow Jesus, you know, the prince of peace. They're going to be peacemakers, the Sermon on the Mount says. Oh, peace and sowing out righteousness. Just like a farmer would sow seeds of righteousness and peace. And it just seems like this apex, doesn't it? In the midst of like this earthly, sensual, demonic Every evil thing is there. Then there's this peace and making fruit just from our lives because of righteousness and peace. And then we get to verse 1 and you wonder if James had like taken a lunch break before he went into the next chapter, you know, and, and uh, kind of lost his train of thought. But, you know, it all ties together because he goes from this, oh, peace and, and sowing out fruits of righteousness. And, and then he goes back into this sensual, demonic, selfish, bitter logic again. Verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your pleasures, or excuse me, from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Can we read that again? Can I, man, we got to memorize this. We, we got to. That's Primeville talk right there. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? Your desires for pleasure. I'll make it personal. My desires for pleasure. That war within our members, within our bodies. The word pleasure here is in the Greek hedone, where we get our word hedonism. And that speaks of pleasure being our life's chief purpose. Doesn't that sound like the American dream, the American way of life? I love America, don't get me wrong. But hasn't that kind of funneled down to what we exist for as a nation so often? At least what we think the American dream is? Just my pleasure, my right to happiness, you know, that's what it's all about. In my marriage, it's about me. That's why I get married. I want pleasure. I want someone to serve me. I want someone to help me build my kingdom up. In my relationship with my kids, the reason I'm coaching a team, you know, as I'm coaching, you know, just got to put myself in check as to why I'm doing this. Does it always come down to, I just want to be pleased? This has just become the philosophy of our society in Prineville. 
It's been calculated that each week in the United States, 12 million golfers vie for tee times. 9 million tennis players compete across the nets. 4 million skiers glide down the slopes. And half a million hunters and fishermen comb the woods for racks and recreation. That's a lot of millions. <laughs> Just out there for pleasure. Out there to enjoy life. God's given us things freely and richly to enjoy. That's a truth. Amen. But that is not our chief purpose in life. And yet, sadly, it's become that. That has become our philosophy. When we live strictly for pleasure, we will eventually come into conflict with the people around us. I don't golf much, but almost every time I've gone golfing, there's been some kind of conflict. Trying to get the tee times and some guy wanting to join in and I don't want that guy to join in. I I just want, here's what I want today. And then because I'm golfing, I go really slow. And then I got the Marshall guy behind me on a golf cart saying, you got to hurry up or we're going to kick you off here. And then I'm yelling at him with my friends. And, you know, this was years ago before Christ had transformed my golfing skills. (laughs) But even when we, you know, or you go fishing and you show up and someone's at your hole and, you know, someone's hunting in your spot. Oh, I'm a big elk hunter. Yeah, where do you hunt? I can't tell you. There's some things I'm going to take to my grave. I'm going to miss out on this awesome time of fellowship and explaining my hunting skills to you because I want to succeed in getting that trophy bull. Harmonious, healthy relationships require us to be givers and for us to commit to one another and to sacrifice for one another and to be unselfish and to be clothed in humility. And every single one of those things are not pleasurable to our flesh. Those are things that rub against our flesh. Those are things that begin to tear down our kingdom and perhaps even build up somebody else's. A hedonist will always end up in broken relationships because they're out for number one. They're out for their own pleasure at the cost of everybody else's. Think of any conflict or clash you've ever been in. Now consider how the source of that battle came from somebody's desire for pleasure and another person's getting in the way of that pleasure. Just think about it. Conflict. Maybe conflict that you're in right now. Think of fights among our children. Yesterday I was down in my office, first thing in the morning, studying this passage, studying this text, and I hear the familiar cry of, Dad! And then the running down the stairs, and then the heavy breathing coming around the corner into my office, and I'm just, somebody did something on the TV that the other person's not proud of, you know, that the other person's not pleased with. I just already know that that's what's happening. That's Saturday morning, you wake up, living for number one, just going to sit and soak up the Saturday morning cartoons. Goes well every time. And you hear the dad, right? You hear the the screaming. And then you hear the, the strife and the commotion as they make their way towards the office. And I happen to have James chapter four open on my computer screen and I just said Russell read this out loud and Lainey you need to listen and Russell read this where do wars and fights come from among you (laughs) do they not come from your desires for pleasery that war in your members (laughs) And we pulled that apart. And I just let Russell reread and think about this. And I said, how is this fight right now? How does James chapter 4 verse 1 pertain to this fight? And they were able to just deduce from the scriptures that they wanted to have pleasure. They wanted to be pampered. They wanted to 
lounge and live in luxury and watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it at the volume I want to watch it when I want. I, I, I. And I just said, Russell, do you hear all of the eyes that you're saying? Who are you watching out for right now? Are you watching out for Lainey? Are you watching out for your mom who shares a wall with our TV? Her headboard shares a wall with our TV. Who are you watching out for? I'm watching out for Russell. Lainey, who are you watching out for? I'm watching out for Lainey. You guys know that's not what Jesus teaches. You know that's not what Jesus calls us to. And praise God, the Spirit convicted both of them and they both prayed out in repentance and that the Spirit would help them to put the other person first and they reasoned what they should do in that situation next time. Think about fights among spouses. Men wanting respect and the tone that was just given to me. It's making me bitter right now. Well, what's causing the fight right there? Your desire for yourself to be elevated. That's where wars and fights come from. Strife among Christians. Wars among nations. Our desire for respect. Our desire for comfort and for rest and for luxury. We want what we want when we want it. And nobody better get in the way. This desire for pleasure is always at war in our members. We are always at war. You think of the World War II generation and all of the rationing that had to take place for this great conquest, for this ability to defeat the Axis powers. And because they were at war, they could only get so much fuel and they weren't allowed to have the nylon stockings and so the gals would paint the line on the back of their legs and certain amount of food and all of these things and everyone came together kind of for this greater good and this common message was we are at war we are at war and you guys the same thing is true here today we are at war Let that move us towards sacrifice of our rights and of our luxuries for that greater good. Douglas Moo writes, James seems to be bothered more by the selfish spirit and bitterness of the quarrels than by the rights and wrongs of the various viewpoints. You might even be right. You might be right in this one. But what does wisdom look like that's from above in chapter 3? It's pure. It's gentle. It's peaceable. It's willing to yield. Romans 7.22 speaks of this battle in our flesh that's always going on warring in our members. For I delight in the law of God according to my inward man. but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. There's this battle going on, this rage. Galatians speaks of it, that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. We are in a war. This is not some yin-yang thing going on. This is, there's a battle going on, but there's, power given to us over the flesh by the spirit of god and it does seem like some kind of sick cycle that will never end but romans 7 ends with i thank god through jesus christ our lord where does victory come from in this war among our members jesus christ 
very next chapter in Romans is chapter 8 about how the Spirit of God comes and gives us victory over this flesh. 1 Peter 2.11 says that Peter begs us as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Because there's this battle, man, we need to know where the enemy is and keep our distance. The scripture says the flesh should not win in this battle, but the Spirit of God who brings humility, the Spirit of God who brings deference, the Spirit of God who helps us exalt the other person's needs and their wants and to esteem them as better than ourselves. Philippians 2 is the classic passage. And I hope you've been around Calvary. If you've been here any amount of time, you'll know Philippians 2 is just your go-to passage on humility in relationships. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, then these ifs here are actually better translated since or because. Let's read it again kind of with that language. Therefore, since there is comfort in Christ, since there's comfort of love, since there's fellowship of the Spirit, since there's affection and mercy, because these things have been given to us in Christ Jesus, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let no thing, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That is a desire to see yourself succeed. Let nothing be done with a desire to see yourself succeed. Just, can you let the Spirit of God work in your heart like a radar and just show you the things, the bleeps on the screen that are things that you are, there's, there's conflict right now with a desire to see yourself succeed? Let nothing be done with that heart. But, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The Greeks hated this phrase, lowliness of mind. It meant to be humble-minded. Humble-minded. You got the philosophers of the world saying, that, that is not good. That is not a good mindset to have. And Paul in 1 Corinthians combats that philosophy in the first few opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. It's a biblical mindset to be lowly, lowly in mind. Literally, it means to stoop down. Just with this idea of stooping down to lift others up. Lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. David Guzik writes, No two believers, both walking in the Spirit of God towards each other, can live with wars and fights among themselves. It will come down to the Spirit of God working humility, sorrow, repentance, reconciliation. We see that in Paul and Barnabas. Paul and, and the son of encouragement getting in a fight in Acts chapter 15, parting ways. But it didn't stay that way for eternity. There's reconciliation. And even the kind of the culprit of the fight, John Mark, ended up becoming useful for Paul in the ministry. The Spirit of God will work humility and reconciliation. If This is if two believers... Walking in the Spirit of God. Romans 12.10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. So where do wars and fights come from among you? 
The desire for pleasure that wars in your memory. Where can peace come from? Kind affection for one another. Brotherly love. Honoring the other person. Preferring them. Preferring them. I prefer you. No, I prefer you. What do you get when you have two people preferring each other? Now they're fighting over who gets to prefer each other. In high school, the Lord worked this work in a bunch of us in high school when we used to have this phrase, shotgun, which meant we get the front seat in the car if we're riding in a car. You guys know it. Shotgun. And, and me and my buddies, we'd always, shotgun. Man, I called shotgun. Get in the back. And you'd stand there at the front seat, standing there saying, get out of the front seat and get in the back. I called shotgun. Does anybody remember these times, you know? Or, you know, in the living room, you know, you're sitting in my chair. And, you know, the other guy would sit at you like, you got up, you know. Well, it's my chair. You know, you guys know it. That was a long time ago when you did that, right? <laughs> Men with your giant leather recliners. Anyways. <clears throat> but the Holy Spirit worked at work in me and my Christian brothers. Reading Philippians 1 or 2, we had to memorize it on our way to a, on a missions trip to Hungary. And the Lord just did a work in us where we preferred each other. And it became, you have the front seat. No, you. And we would joke there, you know, like, oh, we're never going to get to go anywhere because we're fighting about who gets to have the front seat. You should have it. All right, in the trunk for all I care. I love you. I want to esteem you as better than myself. That is carried on into my marriage. Very thankful for that. <laughs> Romans 15, 1 through 3. Wives are great accountability partners, aren't they? How come you don't practice what you preach, like ever? <laughs> Romans 15, these very practical chapters in Romans. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. And in all of this humble stuff, all of this humility... This isn't just some motivational speech like do better you guys and like, you know, be nice and, you know, walk in humility. But whenever you have these things, you have the, the motivation and the power behind it in the gospel. And right here in Romans 15, we have for even Christ did not please himself. That's our example. That's the one who did it first. That's the one who's calling us to walk as he walked. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Same with the Philippians 2 passage. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than himself. Then it goes right into, for such was Christ Jesus. This, is, this was Jesus. Esteeming others. Mark chapter 10, 45. Right when the disciples are battling about who is the best in the kingdom of heaven and who will sit at the right hand of the Father, they're fighting among themselves. Jesus says, you guys, first shall be last. The last shall be first. If anyone wants to be great, let him be the other one's servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 2 of our text today. You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. So there's all this conflict and strife and hostility going on. He's speaking to these Christian believers here who call themselves believers, who, uh, who think it's okay to just... Say I'm a Christian and then to live in a life where you're warring and fighting with one another because of your own pleasure and it just goes even deeper. You guys are in a place where you just are lusting and coveting and you can never quite obtain it. And so you lust and covet even more. Even these shocking phrases like you murder and covet and cannot obtain. Fighting and warring. Samuel Johnson once issued the challenge of all that have tried the selfish experiment, let one come forward and say that he's succeeded. 
He that makes gold his idol, has it satisfied him? He that's toiled in the fields of ambition, has he been repaid? He that has ransacked every theater of sensual enjoyment, is he content? Can any answer in the affirmative? Not one. Living for pleasure will not satisfy. King Solomon did the selfish selfish experiment. You read about it in Ecclesiastes. He pursued gold. And he could. He was the king. During his reign, silver was on the ground like rocks. Bend over, picking up silver. He pursued those things. Gold, ambition, sex. He tried it all. But in Ecclesiastes 2.1, he says, in conclusion, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. That's what I'm going to live for right now. But surely this was vanity, he said. This was worthless. He, he had that selfish experiment. And by the end of chapter 13 of Ecclesiastes, I think it is, he says, everything that I pursued that was just for my own pleasure, I had, a, what was it, 700 wives and 1,000 concubines? Like, I'm going to pursue sex for a while. Nope, that doesn't satisfy. Money, comedy, success, business ventures, career, None of it. Here's what satisfies, he says. Fear God. Know the Lord. Didn't we see that this last week when we fasted for six days as a church? Six days, only water. And man, you're just looking for Saturday to come. Oh my goodness, there's going to be this soup potluck that's going to blow your mind. Oh, you know, so your stomach's growling and you're just... Pushing towards Saturday, pushing towards Saturday. And we come here and all the smells, right? And you come and, and you load up on Ken Curvin's seafood chowder. And you, you're just like, this, there will be pleasure that the world has yet to know in the next five minutes. And you, you get three bites down and you're full. Like, that's what you've been waiting for. So you say, no, I've been waiting for this, so I'm going to cram more in. Then you're in pain. Then you're hurting. And it's over. And then you've got to clean up it all. You know, and then we're cleaning up. And you're, and you're just like, the fellowship's what's awesome, amen? amen? The rejoicing in what God did during the fast, like, satisfying, amen? Yeah. But I'll tell you what, you guys... I love to eat. And I remember just being there with guys afterwards and like the next day and it's just like, now I was sarcastic. I said, man, I sure am satisfied now. Now that I finally got to eat again. And it's like, so what? Now I'm eating again. You know, it doesn't satisfy. The Lord, you know, we we thirst for waters from above and we hunger for bread that's without price. James tells us that the end result of pursuing pleasure is that you continually lust after it and you never get it. You know, for me, it used to be vacation even. And, you know, where I worked, I I accrued more and more vacation the more time that I was there. And, you know, I had almost a month's vacation when I moved out of Corvallis. And, it's just like, oh, vacation, I'm just going to go and I'm just going to just satisfy my flesh for like a month. It's going to be great. And then what is it like at the end of vacation? Vacation ended. That God died. It will never satisfy. You'll always be, does anyone else say amen to this? Like, can you think of a, this is that uh, Samuel Johnson test. He says, you know, can anyone who's just tried to live for pleasure, say that I have arrived. No, you always want more. You know that. If you continue in the flesh, warring for your own desires, 
you will continually covet that which is not yours, but you'll never get it, and you'll always want more of it. You'll do anything to get it, including murder. Because at the heart of murder is covetousness. And it's envy. And it's self-seeking. It's destruction, but we'll never seize it. The fighting and the severe clashing will continue, but we'll never lay hold of it. Hebert writes, the word kill or murder here is startling and is meant to startle. James sought to force his readers to realize the depth of the evil in their bitter hatred towards one another. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, anger like that comes down to murder. You fight and you war, he says. This sums up the last 3,000 years of human history. It's been estimated that over the last 3,100 years, only 286 years have been without a war someplace in the world. This means that only 8% of human history has been a time of peace. For every two minutes of peace in the world, there's been two hours of war. It's been said that peace is that one glorious moment in the world's history where everyone stands around reloading their weapons. Countries battle, neighbors bicker, companies try to bankrupt each other, they war and they fight. Now the caveat at the end of verse 2 is, you don't have these things because you don't ask for them. There seems to be a breath of fresh air here for the person warring and battling to obtain their pleasure. Oh, all I needed to do was to just ask for what I wanted and I'll get it? Oh, yes. After all, there are those verses in scripture that tell me I can have whatever I want by just commanding it to be there in faith, right? Mark eleven twenty two. Jesus answers and says, have faith in God for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and it'll be cast into the sea and you don't doubt in your heart, but believe those things, what you say will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe when you receive them and you will have them. Now, just as soon as our lustful man begins to ask what he wants from his genie in the bottle, you mean I can finally have whatever I'm lusting after? James pulls the rug out from underneath him and says, verse 3, you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You can go ahead and ask for all that you covet, but you will not receive it. Why? Because you're asking from a wicked heart, from a bitter, poisonous spring of self-seeking. You're wanting these things for your lust to be fulfilled. God will not bless that. These scriptures about asking God for great things and receiving them were never so that your every selfish ambition could be fulfilled, but rather so that you could do the will of God, bearing much spiritual fruit and making disciples of all nations, furthering the kingdom of God as you love God and love people. John 15, 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask for what you desire and it shall be done for you. Yes! The key is abiding. When you're abiding, you're going to be crying out for the desires of the Lord's heart. Verse 8 of John 15 says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So at the heart and the context of all of this, asking for whatever you might ask for and you'll receive it is discipleship making, glorifying the God, the God, and furthering his kingdom. 1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
So rub the genie in the bottle, the Lord Jesus, he's going to give me whatever I want. It's not the economy of the scriptures. Be abiding in him. His heart and your heart will begin to beat to the same rhythm so that you will ask for things according to his will. Verses 4 and 5 are a rebuke for compromise among Christians. Adulterers and adulteresses, or the original manuscripts just shout out, adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This adulteress is Old Testament vocabulary. Where James is speaking that to lust and to live for the things of this world is spiritual adultery. We've been betrothed to Christ Jesus as a chaste virgin. We are the bride of Christ. There's a spiritual union, a spiritual covenant that's been made. And so to be in the midst of that union and yet to lust and to live as we've been reading for the things of this world, it is adultery, it is unfaithfulness, it is harlotry. We read that it makes one an enemy at enmity with God. Can you remember that? To live after the world makes you an enemy at enmity with God. Think of this. There will be hostilities between you and God. It's not good. That is not somebody to be in an epic battle with. You'll lose. Romans 8, 7 says that the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. To be living after this world, it's war with God. 1 John 2.15, I'm sure your mind went there when we read our verse today. But it says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here we have what one theologian called the three bullets in the gun of the flesh. Here's the three bullets, Doc, I thought you'd like that. Okay, uh, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. Those three bullets of the flesh is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What strong words from James. If a person wants to be friends with the world, pursuing carnal, fleshly, wicked pleasures, he makes himself an enemy of God. Contrast that with somebody whose desire is to please the Lord, like Abraham and Moses. These men are called the friends of God. Verse 5 of James 4 says, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? This is a, not a direct quotation but seems to be from a particular uh, group of gathered understandings under the general tenor of passages in the New and Old Testament. Speaking of a husband longing jealously for his wife, whose affections are being pulled elsewhere. Those who've been born again have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, and we have his jealous affections pulling for our heart. It's okay to be jealous for what is yours. It's okay for a husband to be jealous for time with his wife. And affection from his wife and vice versa. 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3, Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 
To get away from the simplicity of the gospel is spiritual harlotry. The purity of the gospel. If we deviate from it, we are adulterers and adulteresses. And what a word I believe for us this week and specifically for those of you who were baptized this week. There was a battle for your affections this week. Did being immersed in the waters of baptism really mean anything, you might have asked? Who did you live for this week? Who do you go back to? The old ways, to the old friends, to the old desires and the old affections? Those of us who fasted this week and just came to the Lord saying, All we need is you, Lord, our groom. We are your bride. Going back to the old affections, has there been a rival throne trying to survive? The Spirit of God crying out in our hearts, no, you're not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Now, direct your affections to serving Jesus. He loves you, he gave himself for you. He's jealous for you. Deuteronomy 4.24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, burning with jealousy for you. To have no other gods before him, to have no rival thrones in your life. The solution to all of this carnality, spiritual adultery, verse 6 through 10 tell us it's humility. Humility cures worldliness. It says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The good news in all of this is he gives more grace. More grace in the Greek is megas charis. Mega grace. And so, so far this morning, we've just had a whole lot of fallen condition focus haven't we we've had a whole lot of just oh the flesh and carnality and envy and bitterness and seeking after your pleasure and oh man these rival thrones that try to creep up and so man we yield to them and then we're spiritual harlots and oh and then here's good news friends he gives more grace Just when you're at the place where you're just, you don't even know what to pray anymore, but you know you're not in a good place, the Spirit of God pours out His grace, His mega grace, His large, loud, surprising grace. He resists the proud, but He gives and pours out grace to the humble, lowly, gentle individual. Job tells us he will save the humble person. He gives grace to the humble. If you exalt yourself before the Lord, you're going to be humbled by the Lord. But if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you. That is his economy. He blesses the humble. Peter tells us, be clothed with humility. Then he quotes the same passage. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So be clothed in humility. Verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Because of, remember see that word therefore at the end of, beginning of verse 7? Therefore or because there's mega grace, you're going to be moved to all kinds of imperatives. First of all, just follow with me, we're almost done. We're in verse 7 out of 10 here. First of all, because of mega grace, we're just told to do stuff. Do stuff. Go on YouTube and look up, uh, I think, Bob Newhart, and he's on uh, Mad TV this afternoon. Go look it up, you know. Uh, you know, he, he has a lady come into his psychology office, and she says, you know, Doc, I, uh, I uh, you know, am really afraid to, to go into elevators, He says, hey, before you start, I just want you to know that, you know, it's $50 an hour, no matter how long of the hour we take up. So just, you okay with that $50 an hour? Yeah, $50 an hour. Okay, but yeah, I got this elevator phobia. So um, have you ever, like, been stuck in an elevator? No, I've never been stuck in an elevator. Have you ever had an elevator crash while you're in it? No, I've never had an elevator crash. Have you ever been, you know, 
robbed while you're in an elevator? No, I've never been robbed in an elevator. Okay, okay, so get a pencil out. Write down what I'm going to tell you right now, okay? Okay, got it down? Right, yeah, okay, ready? Ready. Stop it! Oh, wait, what? Stop it! Just stop it! And you know, that's a bit of what James is like. Because, you know, we preach that everything that we tell you to do, like stop it, has to flow from the gospel. Stop it because Jesus stopped it, defeated it, and has now given us the spirit to empower us to stop it. That's what I like to preface things with and a robust gospel. Got a speaker going on here somewhere? (laughs) Shannon. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you know what? It's the devil. She can hear me. (laughs) My phone does the same thing. Yeah. Mine does the same thing. It's so funny. That's okay. Stop it. Siri, stop it. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. But this is where James, this is what James kind of does right now. He's just going to give us a whole bunch of stop it's, okay? So here we go. Are you ready? Submit to God. Oh, well, I, you know, I've been, in the, you know, I've been looking at these websites and I've been, you know, going over here and I know that I shouldn't be here and I've been, you know, touching this and smoking this and looking at this and acting like this. Stop it. (laughs) Submit to God. Now, we do want to preface that there's a therefore in front of this. It's because of mega grace. Because of mega grace, submit to God. That means lying yourself underneath God. Okay? He is the authority in our life. And what we do as Christians so often is we say, well, here's what God says about this subject, but here's my opinion on it. And frankly, I think I'm the authority. Stop it! Stop it. Submit to God. Line up under God, his authority. Resist the devil. Well, you know, I've been... Stop it! Resist him. The language here means go to war with him. Be violent in it. The New Testament speaks of this. Romans 8.13 says, If we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit of God we mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And the idea here is a very violent, like executioner style, like shot to the back of the head to our sin. And John Owen, the Puritan preacher, when he preached on this said, Kill sin. Or it will be killing you. Fight against sin. Resist the devil. Put on the armor of God. Know how to do war with the devil. Resist him. And he will flee. He will flee. Number The third thing here in verse 8. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. So notice the couplet here, resist the devil and he's forced to flee, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You will be in the presence of the Lord. Author Kent Hughes writes, there are two views which the Christian ought to pursue with all that he has, the devil's back and the face of God. The devil fleeing and the Lord drawing near. We don't have time right now. But maybe just write down 2 Chronicles 15, 1 through 19. The language from James seems to be taken from the story of good King Asa. Asa was a king that tore down the wicked high places and tore down the idolatry in Judah. He was one of the few good kings. And the prophet Azariah comes to him and says, Hear me, Asa. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And then the chapter goes on to speak concerning that and all of King Ace's practices. Draw near to God. Another imperative, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands. Just write down Isaiah 1, 15 through 20. Speaking of washing ourselves, making ourselves clean, putting away evil from our midst. So cleanse your hands, you sinners, it says. Purify your hearts. This is the next imperative. This is kind of that stop it. 
It's purify your hearts. Do it. Purify your inner self. And then it says you double-minded. Speaking of this doubting man, James speaks about the doubting man. And don't be wavering like that. You're useless when you're wavering. Then verse 9, lament and warn, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So because of mega grace, show godly sorrow. Show godly sorrow over your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Cornelius Plantinga has talked about how we've lost this view of sin. He writes, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her very salvation. But the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. And man, that when we see sin in our life, we would mourn and lament and weep. And that's a bit of what the week of fasting is about. Just humbling ourselves, in a sense, with sackcloth and ashes and grieving over our sin, mourning over our sin, repenting of our sin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes uh, of the awareness of sin, uh, how the awareness of sin grows in times of revival. He writes, go and read the history of revivals again. And man, amazing how, I believe what we saw last week, last Sunday, was a revival work in this church and in this community all throughout the week, just speaking with people. And Aaron and I at one point said, do we dare use the R word? I think so. I, I have people writing me from Georgia asking me to write letters and articles to their church about how the Spirit of God still moves today in power because his church doesn't believe it. Like, that's the grace of God. That's nothing of us. And, and Aaron and I also said, do we dare use the word revival? And then we said, I'll tell you what, I don't want to touch the glory on this one. This is him. This is all him. We just are humble servants. Read the, the history of revivals. Watch the individuals at the beginning. This is invariably the first thing that happens to them, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes. They begin to see what a terrible, appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the church, and forget their own anguish. It's the thought of sin in the sight of God. How terrible it must be. Never has there been a revival, but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. Every year that the fast, we seem to see some kind of grief and repentance like this. Verse 10, and we're closing, and you guys have been troopers. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, <clears throat> and he will lift you up. If you humble yourself, confess your sin, grieve over your sin, and submit to God, he will not deny you. David writes about this after his confrontation by Nathan the prophet over his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. He writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you do not despise. When we're broken before the Lord, he hears our cry. Closing with Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This means they were proud people. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, 
I thank you that I'm not like other men. And you can kind of see him like pointing over at the tax collector over there. Extortioners, <coughs> kind of coughing, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's have Adam and uh, Andy had two A names there. <laughs> Adam and, and Adam. There you go. Come on up, buddy. And let's stand. Just in closing, <clears throat> let's read the, I'm going to read to you the Phillips translation of this passage in kind of modern English. It says, but about the feuds and struggles that exist among you, where do you suppose they come from? Can't you see that they arise from conflicting passions within yourselves? You crave for something and don't get it. You are jealous and envious of what others have got and you don't possess it yourselves. Consequently, in your exasperated frustration, you struggle and fight with one another. You don't get what you want because you don't ask God for it. And when you do ask, he doesn't give it to you for you ask in quite the wrong spirit. You only want to satisfy your own desires. You are like unfaithful wives flirting with the glamour of this world and never realizing that to be the world's lover means becoming the enemy of God. Anyone who deliberately chooses to love the world is the enemy of God, excuse me, is thereby making himself God's enemy. Do you think that the scriptures have to say about this as a mere formality? Or do you imagine that this spirit of passionate jealousy is the spirit he's caused to live in us? No, he gives us grace potent enough to meet this and every other evil spirit if we are humble enough to receive it. That is why he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I pray as we close in this song, we would humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. I like that Phillips translation, how it says, he gives us grace potent enough to meet this and every other evil. That's mega grace. Let's come bow before the mega grace in this last song.